I, th- I definitely think people only saw themselves childbearing with someone else. And hopefully it, as it becomes more normal for people to have children kind of uncoupled from traditional marriage, that people will see themselves as a mother, even if they're not a wife. Thank you for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Dr. Maggie Smith is an OBGYN who specializes in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, Smith is a lifelong athlete who uses her medical expertise paired with her personal experiences to help women better understand their bodies. Smith strives to use relatable, practical advice with all of her patients by connecting with them on a personal and professional level. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you and so interested to hear a little bit about your path and kind of what led you to to where you are. Yeah. So, um, well, I'm uh, Dr. Maggie Smith, like you said, and I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. Um, I'll be starting my practice in Nashville March 1st of this year. I, I don't want to say I always knew I wanted to go into medicine, but probably around the time of high school, I realized that that was a pretty good match for my personality um, and what I wanted to do. And I actually thought I wanted to be a dermatologist for a long time until I got to medical school and didn't really like dermatology so much. And I really liked OBGYN and women's health. I liked particularly being with women at very um, you know, important times in their life. In, in my case, I get to be with people longitudinally for really um, intense periods in their life yeah. and not entirely, their, not in their entire reproductive lifespan, but for a good portion of it. And so ultimately what drove me to pursue reproductive endocrinology and infertility was a few things. The first, I think, was particularly that infertility is not always viewed as a disease by everyone. And the WHO does classify it as a disease now. People often think it's something they're doing wrong or some sort of, you know, biologic failing uh, that is not true. Um, And so I think helping people understand that it's not their fault and that Mm -hmm. there are reasons why people are infertile. Um, And then I think, you know, ultimately for me as well, family is one of the most important things in my life, helping people no matter their circumstances have that, I think was really something that drove me to pursue this field. Mm. And so far it's been great. <laughs> yeah, you you bring up a really important question or issue about stigma, you know, certainly around, around gender politics as well, uh, in terms of what does it mean for a woman in particular, of course, or of course, to be able to have children uh, and to encounter um, challenges there. I'm curious uh, how, how that comes up and how do you how do you help people with that part of it ultimately if people are really struggling or if i think it's something beyond that just like reassurance on my part and or education can help i do actually refer if possible to reproductive psychiatrists because often these people have been struggling with this for years or months prior to seeing me. And no matter what I tell them, it may not be enough to overcome, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and depression that goes along with infertility. 
I think, you know, there's a couple of, there's a lot of reasons why people can be infertile far and away. One of the greatest right now is that women are just delaying childbearing longer than we used to. And so most women are waiting till their thirties to have children, which just biologically is when you're not as fertile as you were in your twenties. Um, and I think some people feel some intense guilt about that, but realizing that it's not your fault, you know, that you want that you were pursuing your career and doing amazing things. And I do think there is a bit of a fault on the media for making it look like pregnancy at 40 or even mm -hmm. 50 is really attainable and not, you know, mm. people don't understand that the reason Janet Jackson had a baby at 51 was not because she had a baby with probably her own egg, unless she had frozen eggs, it was probably mm -hmm. a donor egg or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. I think kind of demystifying a lot of it for people is key. And then if, be, if they're, if the, you know, demystifying and kind of explaining it to them doesn't do much, I always refer them to a specialist because I've, you know, especially if they're already struggling with anxiety, depression in the, you know, pre-pregnancy period, we know that, you know, they're at risk for postpartum depression. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for doing that. Is there an ideal sort of age or time in life? Um, I think a lot of people who, let's say, are finished with undergrad, let's say in their early 20s, are not really thinking about their fertility. What would you kind of want them to know about their options or, you know? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is first to look at your individual circumstance. So some people will know, like my mother went through menopause early. I have irregular periods because I have PCOS or something like that. So looking at those individual factors that maybe, you know, a doctor has put you on a birth control pill because you had irregular periods. Well, why are you having irregular periods? This will be because I see a lot of women who say, oh, I went on the pill when I was 18. Now I'm 33, come off it. I don't have my period. What's going on? Yeah. So I think that's one thing when you're at least in your you know late teens, early 20s, understanding maybe why you're going on a certain form of contraception and then also understand your familial risk factors mm -hmm. um, for potentially having infertility. And then I kind of tell patients that between the ages of 30 and 35 is when you kind of have to have a, you know, like a serious conversation with yourself, what is important to you mm -hmm. and kind of start to make decisions based on that. The biggest reason, reason is that egg freezing is available and it's great, but it's not a hundred percent guarantee. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of women will say, oh, I'll freeze my eggs when, you know, I'm 36, 37. And while that's fine and plenty of women do it, the caveat there is often it will take multiple cycles of egg freezing to accrue the number of eggs to give you a statistically good chance of having a life birth from them. And so I think sort of approaching that on that discussion with yourself earlier when egg quality is better and um, the yield per cycle when you do egg freezing is going to be better is important. So I think if you're someone who's younger, potentially thinking, do you see yourself having biologically related children? Will your life be not complete without that? Some people, you know, there's so many paths to parenthood with adoption or egg donation. If it mm -hmm. comes to that, that if people say, you know, I will love this child, however it comes to me, which I think ultimately pretty much everyone does. Mm -hmm. But if you also say my life will be absolutely incomplete if I don't have a biologically related child, then really having that discussion of, do I want to preserve my fertility if I'm not having children by a certain age is sort of important to think about. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's good. Um, really good advice, sound advice. I, I have this conversation with a lot of my younger patients who are women, and my experience is even when they're aware of the data, a lot of times mm-hmm. it's very difficult for people to think about these these types of questions. And and even your earlier point about like knowing why you're taking oral contraceptives, I'm I'm often surprised and and quite happy to be helpful when I can be that people in general don't always know why their doctors are prescribing what and and what the implications are for them. Right. Even a basic question like, will my future fertility be affected? I see this kind of frequently. I have women who come in their 30s who have been on birth control pills for many, many years. Now they came off and are having trouble getting pregnant and they associate it with taking the birth control pill. When that's not, you know, not what is going on, probably what has happened is, you know, their ovaries have aged as they would have no matter what. And now when they're trying to get pregnant, um, you know, they're hitting that kind of age-related fertility decline that's natural, but they're now going to associate it with being on the birth control pill, So, the, which is unfortunate um, because they place blame on themselves for continuing to take it and whatnot. I, I see this all the time when people are even, you know, I show them char- charts and graphs of this mm-hmm. is how many eggs you need to potentially make a baby. It sometimes doesn't quite hit home that whatever mm-hmm. I'm doing for them isn't a guarantee. And I think that's a really hard, hard emotional piece to, for people to grapple with. They're sort of, I tell them that you're sort of grieving the loss of the life you thought you might live. Mm-hmm. No, no woman dreams of freezing her eggs. Mm-hmm. And so it's often it's a consequence of something not working out the way you had planned. And I think people are sad about that. And it's hard for them to sometimes realize that they're really emotionally dealing with that. Well, I think there's a cultural piece there. And especially as our culture changes and, you know, people are in the workforce longer, um, you could make a strong case that, that people should be aware of these issues, even, you know, in something like high school health class. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, because I, you know, I, I don't think, I think we do a really poor job of educating people about both contraception, depending on what area of the country you live mm-hmm. in, about both preventing pregnancy and the fact that fertility isn't forever. So understanding where your priorities lie in terms of how many children you want to have. I think also the other thing I I've talked to a lot of my egg freezing patients about is, would you do this alone? Because that is something that is becoming, I think, at least in my practice, is becoming more and more commonplace. Mm -hmm. I think um, particularly in the pandemic with people not as comfortable dating, I think some women are just saying, I'm, I'm going to have a child and not everyone is in the financial position to do so. But I think having that conversation with yourself, if, and at what age would you just pursue having a child on your own? Um, and I think that's not talked about as much. Um, but I think that is something that we will probably see more likely in big cities like New York and Los Angeles, but something that becomes more and more common as kind of reproduction uh, is uncoupled from traditional marriage. Yeah, yeah. Yes. which I, I think is ultimately a positive thing, but you're right that it really means looking at what are the priorities, if the priority is, you know, becoming a mother and not wanting to delay it, but also, you know, having a good idea of how your career choices uh, might play into that. And so if you know... <laughs> 
that you're going to yeah. go to school for the next eight years, yeah, um, that might be and and you know freezing your eggs maybe at the beginning of that or prophylactically or whatever. Yeah. You know, we did at my prior institution when I was at USC, we offered a discount to residents and um, like trainees because, awesome. yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great because, and most people took it, a lot of people took advantage of it because just a, they're not in a financial position to really pay what it, you know, what it actually costs, but they are people that for whom this will be beneficial. Um, many of them are not going to want to start having kids till they're finished with their training, particularly if it's a surgical subspecialty. And then by the time they're mid thirties, by the time, and that happens and it may be a lot more difficult for them to get pregnant. It's really nice. I know that there are some companies, um, that will pay or cover, you know, that cost. And I think people, a lot of people I saw when, when like Apple or Google started covering mm-hmm. egg or embryo freezing for people were thinking that the messaging there was, you know, don't have children now so you can work more. And I didn't really see it as that. Honestly, I saw it as like, these people are probably going to want to work until a certain age and start having children later. You're giving them this benefit that they now, you know, can at least preserve their fertility now and don't have to worry about this five to 10 years down the road. It might serve commercial interests as well as the interests of employees, which, you know, which is much harder for people to get your heads around because in general, you know, we have less trust and with good reason of insurance companies and large employers, you know, someone who says they're looking out for you, um, we're, we're, we're all maybe going to be a tiny bit skeptical. Yeah, I can see where their hesitation came from, especially with the big tech companies that, you know, yeah. uh, you know, prioritize productivity. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, it's really important to be free to focus on what's important. And especially in, in a career like medicine or, or, or law or really any career where you really want to be fully available. Uh, and not yeah. have to worry about factors like, am I going to be able to have a, a child later on the way I want? Uh, it's wonderful to have the technology. It's really, yeah. it's, it's the dawn of a new era. Like you said, it's, it's, it's uncoupling reproduction from sex and, and relationships. Which I think has, it's like good and bad, but I think, you know, as my, I'm, I just turned 35 and I feel like a, a lot of my, outside of the South, a lot of my generation is not married. I I kind of see this like shift in people seeing, you know, marriage and childbearing a little bit separately. Some people Mm -hmm. want, and I think a lot of, you know, growing up, you always think of them coming together, like marriage and children. And then you see people that want to be married, do not want to have children, Mm -hmm. which is when people talk to me and say, you know, is it bad that I don't want to have children? I'm like, no, absolutely. They're a lot of work and a lot of time and money. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I only have two dogs, but they're very expensive and, and time consuming. So I think it's good when people know that. I think the harder part now is the women who usually desire having a partner, but haven't found the right person. And that's becoming more and more difficult and they still want to have children and they're not really sure what to do. I think that's a really, a a fairly large group of patients that I see fit into that category, which they're sort of in this no man's land. Sort of no pun intended. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. But I do think that in big cities, it's a little bit easier, um, you know, just in terms of the dating scene, having kids, not having kids. It could be that, you know, they end up becoming a single mother by choice and then meeting someone two years later. In, In New York, particularly, I lived there for so many years, you definitely see that, that people 
aren't going to wait or take things into their own hands and then maybe meet their spouse afterwards. One nice thing about New York is that there's a lot of untraditional parenting. And Mm -hmm. I think that opens up for the conversation for what makes a family. And really it's just love and, you know, do the people, if, as long as the child is loved and cared for, that's, you know, that's really all that's needed. And so I think, I think hopefully that will trickle down to other, you know, other cities in in America. Cause I think, yeah, I think, you know, if people want to be parents and they want to care for a child and love a child and raise a child, they should be able to do that. It's more empowering uh, in, in places like New York and the difficulty with identity, um, the identity of having a child outside of a traditional relationship and even on dating platforms, you know, it's fairly common to see someone say, you know, um, I have a child and, you know, you're dating us. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of guys who also have kind of put off family. And as you said, it, it's not it's not necessarily about having the biological kids. It's really about having a loving family. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the things that patients that come that are potentially pursuing sort of an untraditional family they worry about what everyone else is going to say. And I think mm-hmm. hopefully as it becomes more and more common, people will have less to say because, you know, truly what is the difference of buying donor sperm and having a child on your own versus, you know, having an unintended pregnancy, you know, yeah. when you're younger, there's not really much difference in terms of how you're raising the child, as long as the child is loved and cared for and either way, it's going to be fine. What do you think is you know, important for people to know just in terms of the process and sort of where to get started and what to expect. I mean, to be honest, like initiation, like first consultation to initiation of treatment is not as long as people think. Okay. It can, for egg freezing, it kind of depends on, most of that depends on when you want to do it. And if you've been on long-term birth control pills, I do have patients come off for two to three months just because usually they're so suppressed, it may diminish their, um, their response a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but kind of depends on their circumstances. And then with, once we've established that they want to do it, it's really what works good for you work-wise or life-wise, um, Mm -hmm. just making sure it kind of lines up there for infertility. It depends on where you are in your workup, but typically you can get a workup done within a month, Mm -hmm. um, within someone's menstrual cycle, kind of depending on when they see you and you could initiate treatment as soon as the next menstrual cycle, depending on kind of where Mm -hmm. they start with you. Um, so it's not that, long to get Mm -hmm. into treatment, which is good. Can I ask Uh, a clarifying question about something you said? When you say if people have been on birth control, it can take a while because they're suppressed. What, what does that, what does that mean? Oh yeah. So basically because birth control pills, um, are giving you a constant level of estrogen progesterone, it shuts off your own hypothalamus pituitary ovarian access. So your hypothalamus and pituitary aren't making, you know, FSH and LH like they would normally to then speak to the ovaries. And so what we want in, you know, an egg freezing cycle is also to have some of your own of those hormones, even though we're giving you those hormones in injection form, we think that those that your brain makes are a bit more potent. They're better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just want to make sure that you're off of it enough time that that kind of wakes back up. So, so taking oral contraceptives essentially tells the brain, Hey, you don't have to make all these hormones and it yeah. takes a few months for your brain to kind of wake up. Yeah, for sure. It's basic birth control pills essentially trick your brain into thinking you're pregnant. Right, right. Your brain isn't going to make the all the hormones that, you know, control the cyclicity of the menstrual cycle and so you're just 
you know, you don't have that anymore. And so it kind of takes, so for most people coming off of it, they'll restart their period um, within the next, you know, the next menstrual cycle um, within, so within the next few weeks. Um, but for some people, it might take a little bit longer and we want to make sure that we have enough time that that, yeah. especially since neck breathing is so expensive too. I'm sure you see a lot of variability. So mm-hmm. but one of the take-home messages, if, if you're thinking about your fertility, re- remember that if you're taking oral contraception, it may take a little while to be yeah. able to do fertility work. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and, you know, just kind of depends on how long you've been on it, why you went on it. Um, for someone who has PCOS, I don't expect them to get their period when they come back off of it. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, a different conver- a conversation to have with your doctor of, of why you went on the birth control pill and what to expect when you come off of it. People think infertility treatment lasts a really long time. Like in the old days of IVF, a cycle was quite long. Now an IVF cycle, really the injection process is anywhere between nine to 11 days. And then your retrieval and egg retrieval, where we go and surgically remove them happens on the 11th through 13th day. So that time frame isn't that long, but it's pretty mm-hmm. intense in that you're coming to the office almost every day, almost every other day and towards the end every day. I think the, uh, the thing that's most difficult, there's always an expectation and then there's the potential that that expectation isn't met. And so it's sort of like a little bit of a depression induction cycle because mm-hmm. you're constantly having your expectations maybe not managed. We try as best as we can to tell, you know, give you realistic expectations while also being optimistic. Mm-hmm. But no matter what, maybe your follicle count goes down, the estrogen doesn't go up as much as you'd like, you don't get as many eggs at retrieval as you wanted. And all of these things, you know, can set you up for a lot of um, disappointment, despair, anxiety, um, Mm -hmm. which I think that is the hardest part probably of infertility treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of emotional roller coaster and and how do people cope when there's such extremes of hope and disappointment yes. and so much uncertainty. So much uncertainty. And I think as well, you know, there's a lot financially that they're putting into this, which I think really um, just makes it all that more intense um, because you're, you're not only wanting it to work so bad because you want a child, but also, you know, that you're spending $25,000 on this mm-hmm. and that's not a, you know, a small sum of money. And yeah. so it all, all of these factors combined, um, can make it re- a really intense period in people's life. I think a lot of people correlate the injections as making you quote crazy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't necessarily feel that's actually true. Mm-hmm. I think it's more the entire process just can kind of make you, um, yeah. it's, it's an emotional roller coaster yeah. for sure. We, we see that in psychiatry a lot, which is kind of like for, for listeners, how do you know if a medication is having a side effect and how do you know if it's like a placebo effect, if it's positive or a nocebo effect, if it's negative? And what I hear you saying, Maggie, is that it's so loaded emotionally, and we haven't even talked about the potential issues for couples that it mm-hmm. can stir up, that when people are getting the initial you know, first week or two of hormone injections, they're likely to assume almost that any kind of emotional things they're having are related to hormonal shifts. And I want to say maybe some of that is also related to gender bias. Yeah. And I definitely, you know, as your estrogen does go higher, people can either feel more emotional, more like cry more easily. Some people feel happier. Yeah. Um, Most people, (laughs) I think, yeah, I think a lot of people 
they're unintended. They don't realize how happy they are with a lot of estrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then when they lose that after the retrieval right. there, you know, it's kind of like a postpartum period, almost mm-hmm. um, a crash, a crash for sure. I th- there's so, and especially when you mentioned the couples, that's another good point because a lot of times the couples are very, you know, well-matched in what they want and what they desire, but there are some times in which one partner wants this more than the other, or is willing to participate more in care than the other. I rarely ever see any sort of blaming or anything on, on one mm-hmm. partner or the other. Um, I think there's also an interesting, sometimes when it's like a male factor in fertility, mm-hmm. the guys seem to not deal with that very well. Yeah. I was going <laughs> so to ask you about yeah. male factors. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times I feel like they think it's an affront to their masculinity, which similarly to female partners, when we told them that something they did wrong, or it's, it's not your fault that you have PCOS, you know, that, that, or, or, you know, endometriosis. Um, yeah. I think a lot of times the male partners can be a little bit, they, they feel like it's an affront when you tell them their sperm count isn't good you know, it could be from a variety of factors, you know, whatever depends on their individual circumstance, but they, I think, uh, I think they feel as a front to their masculinity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times um, I've seen this often that they feel very protective over the female partner and you're kind of going through all these situations. And then they're saying, why is it not good? Is it the person in the back? It's a, it can be a lot of emotions for them too. There's some tendency to deny it yeah. and have difficulty accepting it. I know guys will also tend to joke about things like this and there's a tremendous amount of relief when, you know, their sperm is okay. Right. You know, stereotypically men will say something like my boys are, can swim, you know, right. Uh, there's it's, a lot of uh, projection going on. Um, very much. Do you find that men are reluctant to get tested? Definitely. It's a lot harder to get the men probably in the door than women. Um, I would often say it's the women driving the men um, to come in. I think, I think, you know, with COVID it's been different as well because we're not seeing people as physically in the office as much anymore. And so the male partners can, you know, be on the Zoom consultation a lot easier than sometimes if they had to take off work and come similar for women too. But I think definitely men are much more reluctant to, I think, pursue treatment than than women for what for a variety of reasons. I don't know if it's a sure. you know masculinity thing or just it will get better type of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, yeah, emotional approach. Um, since we're talking about the male factor anyway, uh, are there any age related issues that men should think about or couples should think about? So there's definitely an association with advanced paternal age with things like autism and actually psychiatric disorders, uh, particularly schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. The exact age at which that happens is kind of variable. The other thing to know is that, you know, men over the age of 55, at least at my prior institution, um, we often would go ahead and do what's called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where you take one sperm and inject it into the egg um, just because of age. But there are plenty of men who have gotten women at, you know, um, pregnant at the age of 55 without is, IVF. Is that, ex- is that ICSI? ICSI, yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are the biggest issues, I think, you know, while there is a component of male, like age-related fertility decline with males, it really doesn't happen until the older, much older ages, which there's not as many men reproducing at that age. It's not as early as females. Mm -hmm. Um, So not as much. I have had patients ask, should I freeze my sperm because, you know, I'm 35 and not ready to have children? And 
while you can, it's not something that we routinely do because men can still produce sperm that work just great at 45. The risk benefit ratio isn't as high. So for, for men, you would look at things like sperm count, what the sperm look like, which is called morphology, whether yeah. they move normally, which is called motility. And uh, I guess you might look at some male endocrine factors in some cases. Yeah, the biggest thing we look at is what's called the total modal count of sperm. And that's by taking, you know, the volume of semen, the concentration of sperm and the percent that are modal. And once we get that, and then the morphology as well, we can kind of, if, if someone is on the, you know, lower side, that's when we really start to pursue a workup of, is it an endocrine disorder? Um, obviously, if they've had something like you know, chemotherapy in the past, that is a big tip off mm -hmm. that this now affected their sperm production. So yeah, look, the total modal sperm count is our biggest parameter that we really look at. And, and you can do a lot because in the lab, you can, you can get the modal sperm and you can introduce them to the egg very closely. So that's the good news. People, um, they also worry about things like marijuana smoking. Is, are there any myths or truths to things that men should be careful about? Or that's a t The marijuana is a tough one just because we don't have really good data. I would say I tell patients if they are daily smoking marijuana, they should probably stop um, just because we don't know much yet, but there is a negative effect of nicotine on sperm mm -hmm. production and on eggs. And so, you know, until we have more data, I recommend that they, they quit in terms of if men are doing a lot of hot tubs, a lot of long bike riding and like tight shorts that can negatively affect sperm production. And the biggest one as well, if they're taking like testosterone, mm -hmm. um, they often forget that that's sort of like a male contraceptive. Um, so it works similarly to female contraceptives and that now you're giving your body testosterone. So your brain, a male's brain thinks I don't need to make my own testosterone anymore. And so it shuts down testosterone production, which then, you know, negatively affects sperm production. So I think also making sure that they're not taking steroids or testosterone is another thing that people sometimes overlook. Mm -hmm. And, and fortunately with male factor infertility, you can work with a very small number of sperm, um, which is, is good because we're able to help people with even very severe fa male factor infertility have biologically related children. Are there any things that you have noticed like over the course of your practice in terms of partners supporting each other or even just friends and family knowing how to support someone through a time like this? You know, some people are intensely private with this type of thing. Yeah. Uh, with fertility treatment, they aren't ready to share or don't want to tell people, which is fine. Personally, I was open to sharing when I froze my eggs. I put it on Instagram. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't really, you know, for me, it was more fun to share with people. Yeah. I think one main thing is not asking numbers or questions or how many eggs do you think you're going to get? Okay. That is a, that is a huge source of anxiety for pretty much every fertility patient, okay. egg freezing or infertile. And so not focusing on numbers, but just, you know, do you need anything after your trip? You know, do you need someone to pick you up from your egg mm -hmm. retrieval is like very useful. You do have yeah. to have someone drive you home. I think not focusing on numbers or when is your first HCG after the pregnancy test, after the transfer? Mm -hmm. Maybe not harping on those little things because those are already sources of huge anxiety. But I think asking how what ways you can help them out through this um, is, is helpful. Yeah, I agree. I think it's nice for people to have the support if they do choose to share. And there's, a, I think what people find too when they share is that there's a lot of other people they know that have done it and they didn't know as well. Yeah. 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 
Well, I think the less stigma there is and, and the more openness there is, generally the better sort of normalized it is and better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because then once once one person says, oh, I had to do IUI, mm-hmm. even which is intrauterine insemination, um, which is kind of the step before IVF, then it kind of, oh, I actually had to see a fertility specialist as well, you know? And so then it kind of opens the door for people, you know, one in eight couples is infertile. And um, so I think it, you know, that's a, I think a higher number than people realize. And so once someone starts sharing, you start to realize that you're not, you're not alone in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, I think why I am so grateful for people who are vocal about it. Um, You know, and I think in that sense, reproductive endocrinology and psychiatry have a lot in common because there is that stigma where people might not want to share in the same way. I think hopefully with infertility, at least people are coming to see that more as a disease Mm-hmm. And that this is not something, a moral failing on their part or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that the same will be true of mental health. Personally, as someone who's gone to a psychiatrist and therapist, I told my, my, I was like, I feel like everyone should do this at least <laughs> once a year. You know, it's a pretty like important, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of misconception that even people that are high functioning must not need that. And often people that are very high functioning are, are, are doing quite well, but maybe need to check in every now and then. And at least my personally going to a psychiatrist and therapist, my main misconception was that this was going to be like some sort of like tear fest where I was going to like cry. And it really wasn't. I mean, I was like, it really was mostly a session of like, how are we going to help you live your life better? And I think that's what people don't quite realize that it's almost like, it's just as important as getting your cholesterol checked in my opinion. I hope so too. I think that people, you know, it's a it's a family history thing. It's yeah. a childhood and a trauma and a, you know, but I do think that almost everyone could probably benefit from, you know, the same way we get our skin checked, our eyes checked, yeah. you know, go to the gynecologist, you know, one conversation can actually really go a long way in terms of looking at what are people's goals? Are they living their lives with intention? And yeah. And especially, I think people think you have to go quite frequently. Mm-hmm. And, and now I probably, you know, I, I get calls to them reminding me like, Hey, like, do you need a follow-up? Mm-hmm. Which was not true when I started, you know, I mm-hmm. saw that, you know, more frequently, which is great that I'm in that place. I'm sure mm-hmm. there'll be a place in my life where I need to see them more frequently again. But I think people, I think the misconception is that this, like you have to go once a week, which might be true at some points in your life, but not at all points in your life. Right. right. Yeah. That's a traditional yeah, weekly therapy model. I, I think, you know, I like to think about the idea of deep self-care where, you know, people are very open to the idea of eating well and exercise and sleep and even things like meditation, but really being in the, in right relationship with yourself so that you're available for the other parts of your life is not a given. And like we were saying about, about reproductive um, self-awareness, same thing goes for kids growing up. There's a lot more schools that have like empathy training programs, emotional oh. self-awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, the literature is very clear that for everyone, um, you know, people even without traditional mental illness, developing good executive function, um, emotion yeah. regulation, you know, all these things are, uh, they're hard to pick up along the way. Mm-hmm. It's almost more like coaching. 
for sure. Um, and I think, you know, like I see, at least in my practice that a lot of people, you know, by the time someone gets to me and they're 37 years old and they're not married and they want to have children and now they're facing egg freezing and now their numbers aren't as good. They're typically not the hardest, but it's, you're working with things that you're telling them what they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the people that can really benefit from as well, like reproductive psychiatry, but probably even before, hopefully we'll get better at this, at educating people about their, you know, not only reproduction, but mental health and how to deal with their life, maybe not going as according to plan and having that kind of, you know, not emotional regularity, but I guess a way, a way to cope with things not working out as they planned. Cause I didn't even know for myself personally, being 35, I never thought I'd be 35 and unmarried. I thought I'd have four children by now. Um, and so that's a definite, like for me, something that I had to like kind of parse out in my mind. And I think probably being a reproductive endocrinologist made me think about it probably even earlier than other people. So I know personally for myself, you know, at some point I will just have children on my own, but I think I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position that because of what I do, I thought of these things a lot earlier and I'm not having this all hit me at one time, yeah. which I think what happens to a lot of people around the ages like 37, 38, 39. Well, you know, one way to think about it is in terms of identity or self-concept. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I d definitely think people only saw themselves childbearing with someone else. And hopefully it, as it becomes more normal for people to have children kind of uncoupled from traditional marriage that people will see themselves as a mother, even if they're not a wife yeah. or, or father without, you know, not having a spouse as well. So, yeah. well, I know, mm -hmm. I know many, um, you know, gay couples who either adopt or use a surrogate and they just, they have wonderful families. They do. Yes. I mean, that was in Los Angeles where I was previously practicing. I would say 30% of my practice was same sex couples, um, same sex female couples. It's, I don't say easier, but you have less, um, you know, with same-sex male couples, you have to get both an egg donor and gestational surrogate, which ends up becoming very expensive and, mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, but they, um, they make some beautiful families. A lot of, I had a lot of single mothers, single fathers, a lot of people that just wanted to have a child. And I think that's great. If, mm -hmm. you know, there are plenty of people who want to have children and raise them. And there are plenty of people who don't want to have children. I think that's fine too. Yeah. <laughs> Like what kind of keeps you going just in terms of, uh, you know, we didn't mention, but like going through med school, then residency, then fellowship, it must've been really, really tough. Are there stories and like, like small victories um, or big ones that kind of have kept you going along the way? Yeah, I think that once patients really like, thank you, I, I think it's huge. Like, it's very simple, but when someone's yeah. like, like, thank you for whatever you did. Yeah. That really helps keep me going, especially okay. when, especially in what I do, when you kind of stick with people through yeah. something that maybe isn't being like, I can think recently I had a patient who, you know, we were trying all of these different things and maybe this, you know, trying kind of not unconditional, unconventional, but just like, well, what if we tried this, you know, yeah. and kind of sticking it, sticking through treatment with them. Yeah. And once you finally get them, she finally got pregnant and she was shocked, you mm -hmm. know, and I kind of went as well. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things that then they really are appreciative that you didn't give up on them. I think that mm -hmm. is really rewarding. And even patients who you don't give up on them and they don't get pregnant, they're still very appreciative that you gave them the chance. Unfortunately, there are some people out there that don't always give 
if you don't meet certain criteria, they don't let you do IVF for certain things. But when you do give people the opportunity to just try, a lot of times people just want to try. That's really all they want. And when they're so appreciative of that, that really is, is meaningful, at least to me. Well, you sound like a wonderful physician. It, it, sound, it really sounds to me like you have a humanistic approach. You know, as with surgeons, sometimes, you know, people will want to work with a surgeon who's an amazing technician and they don't care, you know, about their bedside manner. It's a little different if you're having your shoulder repaired, um, yeah. but when you're going through something, it's really important. And, and if your infertility specialist isn't sort of getting the the human connection, it really is a lot harder. So um, I feel happy that you're that you're helping people. <laughs> yeah, I'll say, I mean, I think I, if I ever have to have brain surgery, I would like my neurosurgeon to have somewhat of a GOG complex, but you know, I, you know, that would be, that would be fine. But I like guarantee internist, he will. Yeah, exactly. My internist, I don't think they have to have that, you know, or maybe dermatologist. A, maybe yeah. an, a, an excellent neurosurgeon yeah. complex. <laughs> Ultimately, also in what I do for your listeners, the other really important piece of IVF is the lab um, and going someplace that, you know, if, if you can find a doctor that you really mesh with and that there's also a very good lab, that's really the, oh, yeah. you know, the best of both worlds. Because as good as I, I can be with my ovarian stimulation, I don't do, you know, the egg freezing itself or, mm -hmm. you know, watch, you know, you know, caring for the embryos or doing the ICSI. Um, so having a good lab that produces good results is, is, is really all key to my work as well. And the administrative part, uh, I've also oh. heard of when people go to institutions often where the paperwork is really burdensome, um, it is just the end of the world. I mean, that's like one huge bear, especially because insurance may not always, depending on what state you live in, not every state has mandated fertility coverage and the paperwork that can come with fertility treatment and applying for, you know, pre-authorization and benefits can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just can become so much and, and people are already upset or emotional. Mm -hmm. And then when you, you know, slap them with a $5,000 bill. Um, they're much less happy as well, yeah. you know, understandably. Yeah. So Yeah, but that's where I think having a doctor like you or someone that they really feel connected to yeah. and who can sort of help walk them through it, even though it's not exactly your domain, you know, just right. to kind of... Yeah, exactly. Like, at least I can tell them like, this is try to also not divert their attention, but at mm -hmm. least, you know, focus them on what we're trying to accomplish and that we'll get the billing worked out and, yeah. you know... I can go and speak with the billing department and whatnot. Not that I know how to code or anything. You know, I can eventually help get that straightened out. But let's focus on what you know what we're what we're here to do. This has been amazing. I know we're um, wrapping up, and thank you so much oh, for yeah, your time you today. For, yeah, thank you for sharing <laughs> yeah. your, your own experience as yeah. well. Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Think... I always tell people about yeah my two I, in fellowship. I froze my ex twice, and I started seeing a psychiatrist. And, <laughs> I mean, at first, Max probably at the right time. I wish I started seeing a psychiatrist earlier. Um, definitely, but you know, yeah, kind of like twenty twenty. But that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I try to tell people now because I'm like, it's the best. I go. I every time I go, I leave feeling better. So I'm Aww. like, why would I not want to go to this? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Well, thank and, you for supporting our field. Yeah, for sure. So, and where can we find you, uh, or where can listeners find yeah. you if they? So, I'll be practicing at Nashville Fertility Center starting March 1st, um, seeing patients um, there. I mean, it'll be still virtual with COVID. Um, and then online, my website is meggysmithmd.com. And my Instagram and Twitter is at MBS Thinks. So that's my initials, MBS. And yeah. back in med school, I had a blog that was called The Things uh. I Can Think. 
And that's where that came from. So it's kind of all carried over from years ago. Oh, cool. And for listeners, your first name is Meggie, M-E-G-G-I-E, smithmd.com, right? Yes, it's with an E. It's from, I was born in 86. And so that was the year the Thornbirds came out, a miniseries. And that's where my parents got my name from. (laughs) If anyone's familiar with it. All right, great. Well, thanks again for all the work that you do. And yeah, thank you guys for yeah. having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah. hopefully that people find this helpful. Yeah. Yes. I hope too. everything goes great in yeah. Nashville. Yeah. They're lucky to have you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. All right. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.